0: sure that we're just taking time out to uh, create an environment uh, for those who are not married, to, uh, to hear the word, to have specific applications to the single life. Uh, with that being said, we do want to, to point out just the, the, that we're, we need to grow in this area in ministering to singles. I think that we have uh, in, in many ways dropped the ball in, in ministering in this way. And with singles, there's uh, complexity because people are different stages uh, of singleness. We have some people who uh, do not desire to be married. We have some people who desire to be married. We have some people who are older, um, some people who are younger, different stages of life, uh, some who are single because they're uh, widows, others who are who may be single because they're divorced. So, so we just pray that it's our first one. Uh, come, enjoy, sit under the word, uh, grow, uh, fellowship, but also we ask for your patience as we as we wade into that, I think that you guys will will enjoy it. If you're uh, married, we ask you to uh, give some time to to come and to serve uh, the singles of this church by donating uh, some time to, to be here to help uh, set the atmosphere so that the Lord can work. I'm really excited about it. We've got uh, a great, uh, good number of, of singles already signed up, but make sure you sign up uh, for that conference. We'll stand to your feet with your Bibles in your hand. And let's turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And in some of your Bibles, uh, you'll notice that uh, there may be a footnote uh, in verses 2 through 11. Uh, Some of your Bibles may actually be italicized at this point or have brackets. And basically what that footnotes, brackets, or um, italics is pointing to is that the earliest manuscripts of John actually don't have this portion of the text in them, okay? And before you say, wait a minute, you're spoiling Christmas for me, uh, just understand that the earliest manuscripts did not include these verses in the Gospel of John. However, um, later on, they were placed here, and this was accepted by early church tradition as, as, uh, as happening. It was a part of oral history and then was added at this area of John. And if anything, this should grow us in our, our trust for the Bible, that if there is anything that has been added that wasn't a part of the original manuscripts of the Bible, you have a footnote and it explains that, all right? Uh, but the earliest uh, traditions of the church preached on this passage, as well as uh, many scholars uh, say that this uh, is, is verified. In many ways of oral history and also in the life of Jesus. So we're going to read this as we continue our series on the fruit of the Spirit in the life of Jesus, and today we're going to look at this characteristic of, of gentleness, and we're going to go to one of my favorite passages to do so. John chapter 8, starting at verse 2, uh, the precious Word of God reads, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word to your people. I pray, Father, that you will allow your anointing, your Holy Spirit, uh, to manifest themselves here in this place, that you uh, would allow your word to go forth with power. I pray for uh, every heart here, uh, Lord, that you, uh, by your grace, would, uh, would draw each person here, that you would capture their attention, that you uh, would speak like only you can. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my God, my strength and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. So again, we are continuing this series on the the fruit of the Spirit and the life of Jesus. And the fruit of the Spirit uh, refers to, of course, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 24, where the Apostle Paul uh, begins to show us uh, the difference between those who walk in the flesh and, and those who live in the Spirit. And he says, those who have been redeemed by God, those who have been given a new heart, uh, uh, those who have been regenerated by God's grace, uh, they uh, learn to live in step with God, in step with his spirit, and there is a certain fruit. Uh, there are certain characteristics of their life, and he begins to go on and talk about these characteristics, characteristics like love and, and, and peace and, and joy and, and so forth. So we've dealt with those, and today we're dealing with this characteristic of, of gentleness, And now when we talk about gentleness, we want to understand that the Bible puts a a great deal of emphasis on this characteristic. In fact, throughout the New Testament, we see over 40 verses pointing us to the characteristic of gentleness. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, we read, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes, let your gentleness be evident to all. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, we read, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, we read, but you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, a text which uh, I think has been misused and and misunderstood, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, we see that Peter is, is a writing wives, and specifically the context is wives who are probably suffering, uh, because they are married to people who are are uh to someone who is, is not saved, and as a result, they are suffering. That's the context of first Peter. But he tells a wife to instead it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And that verse unfortunately has been used to uh to really be a a verse of bondage for for women, especially because we don't understand what gentleness means and what he means there by quiet spirit, but we'll clear that up before the end of the sermon, Lord willing. So in the New Testament, we see that the New Testament talks a lot um, about gentleness, and we see in our culture today, I do think that even within the church, there is a deep misunderstanding of what it means to be gentle. Um, I also think Uh, that the same was true in in Roman culture. When the Apostle Paul writes to church and he tells people to pursue gentleness, we have to understand that this would have been completely counter-cultural. In Roman culture, men did not pursue gentleness. In fact, if a man was gentle, he was seen as a joke. He was looked down upon. In Roman culture, men were strong. Men hit their emotions. Men show strength at all times. In fact, the culture, Roman culture, was very braggadocious culture. It was all about self-marketing, self-presentation, and for a man to be gentle in Roman culture was to be associated with him being feminine and less of a man. But throughout the New Testament, we see That the Apostle Paul is calling men, he's calling the church to this quality of gentleness. We see that Jesus is modeling gentleness throughout his ministry. In fact, in in the book of Zechariah, we see that the, the, the coming Messiah is described as one who is coming lowly on a donkey with gentleness. We see that the prophet Isaiah says of the coming Messiah that And he is going to be gentle. He says a a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not put out. In other words, this coming Messiah will deal with people with such a, a gentleness. So in this text we see that Jesus is going to deal with two separate groups with gentleness. He's going to deal first with those who are comfortable. And he's going to to disturb their comfort, but he's going to do so in a gentle way. And then we're going to see that he's going to deal with this woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. And we'll see that he's going to deal with her in gentleness as well. The text tells us that Jesus is at the temple and he is teaching, in essence, a Sunday school class. He's teaching a Sunday school class, and I can imagine that everyone's attention is just captured that everyone is into his teaching. Throughout the Gospels, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was a master teacher, a master storyteller, and that when he taught, people listened. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, it says that Jesus, in the midst of teaching, uh, taught so well that a demon was exercised just by him teaching. It also said that people listened and they concluded that he is not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He he doesn't teach like them. They said, no, he teaches as one with authority. He teaches as one with authority because he is the very author of life. Often Jesus would teach and people would walk away and their hearts would burn within them. So see this scene. Jesus is teaching a Sunday school class. Everyone is Is paying attention. They are hearing this good news from this great teacher. And then suddenly you hear a commotion. It's a group of young men and old men dragging a woman who is fighting to cover herself with a sheet. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they bring this woman. Before Jesus, and they tell Jesus that this woman has been caught in adultery. Now, the text says that this is a trap. That they have brought this woman before Jesus because they are trying to trap him. Now, why are they trying to trap Jesus? Because they're jealous. The religious leaders of the Jews, they're losing power. People are no longer looking at them in the same way that they used to look at them. Where they used to think that their teachings were were giving life, they're realizing that their teachings is all about bondage. They're realizing that there is a different message that is coming from their lips and Jesus' lips. And not only that, but this man Jesus, man, he's a bad man. When he touches someone who is blind, they have sight. When he touches someone who has leprosy, they are healed. When a woman who had an issue of blood just touched the hem of his garment, she was set free. He speaks a word, doesn't even have to go to someone's house, and they are brought back to life. So they say, we can't allow this to continue, least we lose our power, our position, and our pay. So what do they do? They come up with a plan to to get rid of Jesus. And I've got to be honest, their plan, it's evil, but it's brilliant, (laughs) all right? I mean, it's an evil plan, but it is a brilliant plan. And this is what they do. They bring a woman who was caught in adultery, and they point out to Jesus that the law of Moses says that she should be stoned because she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, that's important. The text is pointing out in the act of adultery because it's not just being Called an adultery is not just thinking someone is being adulterous, it's actually catching them in the act. So they bring this woman to Jesus because they have caught her in the act. And they figure this: Jesus has one or two options. Either he condemns this woman. And if he condemns this woman and she's stoned in the sight of everyone who's a fan of Jesus. He no longer comes off as the loving teacher that he says that he is. And not only that, he's in trouble with Rome. Because Jews couldn't just stone anyone under Roman law. Everyone got a a trial. So they said, what what is he going to do with the law of Moses? Is he going to let this woman go free? And then they say, wait a minute, but if he lets her go and he doesn't do anything, we've got him. Because then he is not submitting to the scriptures. It's a brilliant plan. It is. It's quite, quite fascinating. But it's more fascinating to see what Jesus does with him. And Jesus, Jesus is so calm, cool, and collective. That, that God man, that, that man is as cool as the other side of the pillow. I mean, they have set the perfect trap for him and somehow he is going to figure out a way to put it back on them. Look at the text. The Bible says this, verse number six. And They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This is a fascinating scene. Do you see the scene? Everyone is in uproar. uproar. They, they interrupt him teaching his Sunday school class. They probably shove and throw this woman at him. There are young men there who is looking to make a reputation for themselves as Pharisees and scribes. And then there's older men there who are jealous and raging on the inside because they're no longer the center of attention. And there's this woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. What is Jesus going to do? What does Jesus do? The Bible says he stoops down and he begins to write in the sand. He begins to, to write in the sand. Now, there's been great debate about what Jesus wrote in the sand. Some theologians say that Jesus then writes the Ten Commandments in the sand. And upon writing the Ten Commandments in the sand, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they look at the sand and they begin to see the law of Moses, and they realize when Jesus say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, they realize that they're guilty themselves, and they drop the stones. That's possible. Others say, no, no, that's not what Jesus was doing. in the sand." Jesus actually wrote the names of every scribe and Pharisee that was there, and then he put a little hyphen, and next to it, he began to reveal their own sins. And upon seeing their friend's name in the sand and the latest thing that they did that they didn't want nobody to know that they did, everybody else like, you know what, Jesus, I'm cool. You, You all right? You know, it's not that big of a deal, brother. And they began to walk away. That's plausible. That's possible. But I don't think that's what Jesus was doing. I got a funny feeling when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to tell us, you know what I was doing? I was sitting there drawing emojis in the sand. (laughs) I was just doodling. The reason I was doodling is because they thought they had me trapped, but I wasn't sweating because I already knew how this was going to play out. And the Bible says that they begin to engage Jesus. They see him doodling in the sand, right in the sand, and they keep questioning him, and finally Jesus stands up and he answers them, and his answer is very peculiar, he says, "Let he who is without sin cast the first stone." And then he goes back to doodling. What? What's happening here? Ah, I see what Jesus is doing. See, I believe the reason that they dropped their stones and walked away? is because they realized that Jesus was actually condemning them or pointing out the fact that they were just as guilty as she was. Because according to the law of Moses, if one was to be stoned, they had to be stoned by two or three witnesses who actually caught them in the act and it could not be done in partiality. So the issue is, why is the woman in front of him and not the man? This is sexism at its worst. This is a setup. They have conjured this thing up. They have probably framed her. I mean, after all, two or three people catching some a couple, committing adultery, how did that happen? Either they were extremely careless or this was a planned out scheme for this woman to be set up and for Jesus to be set up. They're trying to shame this woman and Jesus peeps game. and He says, wait a minute. If this is going to be a a just court case, if this is going to be a just trial, in essence, he's saying, where's the man? Let the person without sin cast the first stone. And I love what the text says. The text says that the older men begin to drop their stones first. And I pondered that for a day. Why the older men? Why why did John specify that it was the the seasoned Pharisees and scribes? I believe it's because there's a basic principle that, that wisdom does come with age. And that the older men realized what was happening. And they said, you know what, y'all? He done got us again. And they walked away. But notice how Jesus deals with these these Pharisees. He is is gentle towards them. He deals with them and and gets out of the situation. But also notice how he he deals with the woman here. The text says in verse 9, How, how powerful this is, this woman who is caught in the act of adultery is probably not only dealing with guilt, but dealing with shame. See, guilt is the feeling that we have when we know that we have wronged someone or sinned or or feel that we have sinned, but shame is that that feeling of not, I have sinned, but I I am bad. It's an identity issue. I am worthless. This woman has just been paraded before this entire town. This woman has just been mocked and yelled at by these men. These men are using this woman just like the man whom she cheated with, and they're supposed to be the religious ones. Do you see how dirty and, and filthy she feels? And now this this teacher, who some believe is the Messiah, is standing in front of her, and she thinks that it's uh, that she's a lost cause, and she's lost everything. This reputation is gone, and now he's going to condemn her, and what does he do? I love what the text says. The text says that immediately he stands up, and he looks at her. Now, he didn't stand up and look at the Pharisees until he had to. But her, no, he wanted to deal with her. He wanted to deal with her because the Son of Man did not come to save those who were not in need of a physician, but he came to save those who were in need of physicians. He looked at her and he affirmed her dignity. He affirmed her worth. He looked at her with a gaze that she probably had never been looked at. It wasn't him trying to to look at her her figure. It wasn't him minimizing her uh, to to her shape. It wasn't him looking at her as a sexual object. It was the God of the universe that made her, affirming a, 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 a beauty in her that is innate because she is made in the imago Dei and the image of God. Do you see the freedom that she is experiencing before Jesus? And he tells us, he says, listen, where, where are the men who set you up? Where are the men who condemned you? And Jesus, she looks around and she says, they're not here. See, Jesus in John chapter 6, 13, th- Three chapter verse 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus did not come with a message of condemnation. He came with a message of forgiveness because he knew that she had just been impacted in a salvific way, and he releases her of that condemnation. But listen, look at the genius of Jesus. He does that without condemning her, but he also does it without condoning her sin. Jesus does not condemn her for her act of adultery, but he also does not condone her lifestyle. He says, go and sin no More, do not live that life of sin that you've lived. All right, let's talk about gentleness. How does this apply? When we talk about gentleness, we need to understand the the biblical definition of gentleness. We need to understand how how it really works so that we can in embody it. And the Greek lexicon surprised me this week as I was looking up the word, and it defined gentleness as not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Gentleness is a posture of the heart that is not impressed with one's importance we are gentle when we realize that we are that woman when I'm harsh Christian when you're harsh it is normally because we are thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to It's because we have become like the scribes and the Pharisees and we believe that somehow we are more superior. Somehow we are better than the other person. We lose sight of the fact that if it is not for the grace of God, so are we. And rather than than love a person, rather than be patient with a person, we then are harsh towards them because we are believing our own height. Gentleness is deeply rooted in humility. And we realize that we are just decorated dust, dust. We were created and formed from the dust of the earth we read in Genesis, decorated. God clothed Adam and Eve in the garden In the same way, we are dust. We are from the dirt, but we are decorated. God has given us his grace and called us his peculiar people. And if you get offended at the fact that I'm calling you decorated dust, go home and take a tub bath tonight. Run the water, sit in it for a while, and then drain the tub and look around the ring of the tub. You'll see that dust, that dirt particle. But we are harsh with people when we forget that just like this woman, we stood condemned. But we are found forgiven in Christ Jesus. How could Jesus let this woman off? How could she go free? The reason she could go free is because Jesus just weeks later would stand condemned for her. Jesus would be stoned for her. Jesus would die the death she deserves. In the same way, Christ has taken upon our sin, upon himself, and he is stoned. He receives God's wrath. is poured out on him when it should be poured out on us. And that changes the way we interact with people when we see ourselves as a sinner in need of grace. And that the person who has betrayed us, that the, the person who did not show up when they said they would show up, that spouse who continues to, to not do that, that, that one chore that you need them to do, that that, that friend who uh, is, is annoying you when you realize that you are as equally as annoying. Maybe not to other people, but definitely uh, to you could be to God if he was easily annoyed. You can be gentle. But here's what I want you to understand, two things. Number one, understand that gentleness should not be seen as a personality, a volume, or a a weakness. It's not a personality. All right? Here's what I mean. I think in the church we do a great disservice by teaching that gentleness is a personality. And so anyone who has a loud personality or an extrovert, we look at them and say, oh, you need to be more gentle. Wives, you need to have a gentle and a quiet spirit. And when your husbands ask you to do something, make sure you're gentle and quiet like this. Don't ever get excited about anything with them. And please don't be so opinionated. Just make healthy suggestions. Yes, healthy suggestions, not suggestions, healthy suggestions. Say, sweetie, I have a healthy suggestion. (laughs) And wives that have a more bold, outgoing personality and gifts, they feel oppressed. But when the Bible talks about gentleness, the Bible is talking about a posture of the heart. That's why he says a quiet spirit. That means internally there is peace there. And there's peace there because you know the prince of peace. So when an unbelieving husband is not uh, uh, acting as a a Christian and there's some disagreement there, rather than fight in the flesh, you treat them as Christ treats you. My daughter, one of my daughters, she has a loud personality. Uh, that girl, she screams to communicate. That's just the way she communicates. I had to, I, I had to get her ears checked. I'm like, Can, is everything okay? I mean, everything she says is loud. And she'll be in the house right next to her, and she's just yelling. I'm like, sweetie, why are you yelling? I'm just so excited, Dad. I'm like, we're excited too, but we're next to you, you know? That's just her personality, and it's beautiful. It's the way God made her. But for someone to look at her as she grows up because she has an outgoing personality and to say that she's not gentle, I don't think is what the Bible is saying. I believe the Bible is talking about a posture of the heart that deals with people and treats them knowing that people are fragile and people are precious. A gentle heart uh, uh, is, 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 is using words not to tear someone down, but to build them up. Gentleness, our gentleness with other people is directly correlated to our ability to abide in Christ. If we're not abiding in Christ, if we're not enjoying the Lord, if we're not spending time in the disciplines and in prayer, if we're neglecting our relationship with Jesus, we're going to find ourselves more sharp and less gentle. Last week, we talked about the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T. That when we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, we are more susceptible to sin. And I believe the same is true when it comes to to being gentle. That we are more susceptible to being harsh when those things are at play. So notice in verse 53, it says, then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So before this passage, before Jesus is confronted with the Pharisees, he goes to a mountain. And what is he doing on the Mount of Olives? Well, throughout the scripture, when Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, he is spending extended time in prayer. This was an opportunity for Satan to tempt Jesus to not walk in the spirit, but Jesus was able to respond in the spirit, yes, because he's God. But remember, he's also fully man. And he is tempted, the writer in Hebrew says, just as we are, Jesus was able to constantly respond and step with the spirit because he was in constant communion with the father. And it's tough being gentle. But it's tougher to be gentle when you have not been communing with God. It's tough. Not only is gentleness not a personality or or volume, but we have to understand that gentleness is not passivity. We think that to be gentle is to be passive. No, you can be active and be gentle. In fact, the Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. And some of us think that being gentle means that we never confront people or call out sin, but that's not what we see here. Jesus is gentle with this woman, but he acknowledges that she is in sin and that that is not okay. I mean, the book of Galatians, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. But throughout the book of Galatians, Paul is laying down truth. I mean, listen, he tells the church of Galatia, he says, if anyone comes preaching another gospel, let them be a curse. Galatians chapter 2, he says, I confronted Peter to his face as a result of his hypocrisy. Goes further in Galatia, in the book of Galatians to the Galatians. He says, listen, says those who are from the circumcised party who is preaching another gospel. He said, I wish that you would emasculate yourselves. Is is Paul out of the spirit when he's writing to the church of Galatia when he's speaking truth to them? No. Paul is in the spirit. Sometimes we are required to speak truths to people that are are hard for them to swallow. But here's how you know if you're doing it in the right spirit. The question is, is are you confronting them from a posture of the heart that recognizes that you are a sinner too, number one? Second is, are you confronting them out of a concern for their own soul and for the glory of God? See, when things become about us, that's when we're not gentle when it becomes about our reputation, our space, our time, our schedule, our glory, that's when we're not gentle. But when it's about the glory of the Lord, concern for His church, we move into being gentle. It's interesting that sometimes I see Within our circle, husbands having a hard time, of course, being gentle with their wives. And I think a large part of that is because we have bought into an ideal that is just not biblical. Now, I'm about to cross a line here or get close to a line. But before I draw my conclusion, keep your shoe on and don't throw it at me. Answer this question. Husbands, where in the Bible does it say, lead your wives? Guys walking around, I got to lead my wife. I got to lead my wife. Your wife is not a child. The Bible says, love your wife. You lead your wife by loving your wife. You lead your wife by making sacrifices for your wife. And what is love? Love is a willing commitment to the welfare of another. It is teaching, it is treating them how Jesus treats you. What is love? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not rude. Love your wives and lead through love. Finally, we see that gentleness is is embodied when we learn to lead ourselves and our neighbors to the cross instead of to the law. Gentleness is embodied when we learn to leave our neighbors to the cross instead of to the law. Here, Jesus leads this woman to the cross. What do you mean? Well, for the Pharisees, the law was the end. For Jesus, the law was a means to the end. For the Pharisees, they got so caught up in the law and the details of the law that they did not apply it with wisdom. Jesus used the law, he's the very fulfillment of the law, as a means to know God in his heart. We take people to the law when they wrong us. And rather than listen to them as a fellow sinner, we condemn them, we remind them of what they did, we harp on the hurt of what they did, and we leave them there. Parents, as we're parenting, don't, Take your kids and leave your kids at the at the law. Well, you got to take them to the cross. Yes, show them. We've got to show them where they are wrong. But we also need to show them that, that just like they fail, we fail too. And just like we forgive them, we need forgiveness from each other as well as from the Lord. And that's why we need Jesus. And that's why they need Jesus. And it's hard. Oh, it's hard. (laughs) Went on vacation for five weeks. Uh, Thank you, Sojourn. Amen. Gave me some time away to get refreshed and and ready for this next season. Uh, And I'll tell you, week one, I was excited. I'm with the kids. I'm like, this is going to be great. And everything was great. Got five of them. Week two, I got a little twitch. I'm like, this is still cool, but everything's going to be great. Week three, I'm kind of walking around a little bit, getting a little less gentle. Stop it. What are you doing? Sit down. Week four, I'm apologizing to my wife because I'm having a flashback of all the time she's at home all day working, and I come in and out going to meetings. And then at the end of the day, she's like, just go to bed. I don't care. Go to sleep. I'm like, oh, sweetie, you need to be more gentle. You know, are you hungry? Are you angry? I'm sure you're tired. (laughs) I'm like, no, 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 sweetie. (laughs) You are a saint. (laughs) But as we engage in people, are we taking them to the law or are you taking them to the cross? When we take them to the cross, we remind them that we're sinners just like they are. That forgiveness is found in Jesus And that we have no right to hold them captive. That though we may need to go to counseling and and we have to work through things for a long time, that we release them and we forgive them just as Christ has forgiven us. That's what Jesus does. He takes her to the cross. This is my last word to you. For some of you, the hardest thing for you is not necessarily being gentle with others. The hardest thing for you is being gentle with yourself. As well as taking other people to the cross, you've got to learn to take yourself to the cross. You've got to learn to preach to yourself and to remind yourself that just like this woman, you fall short, but that Jesus is tender and dealing with you and your sin. That when you sin, you have an advocate in heaven. And that if you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. For some of you, it's as if you're living with a megaphone inside of your head. And every time you sin, every time you fall short, every time you feel that you don't measure up, you look around at other people and you think that everyone is better than you and you are condemning yourself day in and day out And you struggle with joy because you're taking yourself to the law and you're leaving yourself at the law. Take yourself to the cross. At the cross, you'll see how God loves you. And you'll see that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And you'll see that even on your worst days that you are loved beyond human comprehension that God is not in heaven looking at you angrily wishing that he never saved you, but that he is looking at you with love and affection and saying, I love you as if you were perfect because you are in Christ Jesus declared righteous. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that God is in love with you and with me? With all our faults and our failures, that he is crazy about you, that he is satisfied with you now? Do you see him gently dealing with you? Say, where is your accusers? thing you're beating yourself up for, Christ died for and buried over 2,000 years ago. The thing that you're holding yourself hostage to, Christ has already set you free. The thing that you're struggling with, he already knows and he's in it with you. Find freedom in him. Every Sunday we remind ourselves of this gentle savior of this Savior who was taken to a, through an unjust court process and beat, mistreated for you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he lifted a cup. and says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, Christian, the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And every week when we take this meal, we remind ourselves that our Savior is gentle towards us and he forgives us and he loves us. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you to refrain from this meal. But I want to encourage you to take Christ. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and find your rest in Jesus. Let's pray.